0: So Siddharth Deb is associate professor at the Eugene, College Lang, Eugene Lang College for the Liberal Arts at the New School in New York City. Uh, he, In addition to his most recent book, The Beautiful and the Damned, A Portrait of the New India, uh, which was published in 2011 by Faber and Faber, and which was a finalist for the Orwell Prize, Siddharth is also the author of two novels, The Point of No Return and An Outline of the Republic both published by HarperCollins, 2003 and 2005. Um, I thought there'd be two things that uh, would be sort of worth me speaking about uh, to introduce Siddharth. Uh, The first is just to say a little bit, uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with this topic, but uh, to say a little bit about the new India which Siddharth is trying to portray in in this book through his uh, study of these sort of various actors. Um, as some of you may know but as many of you may not, uh, India until for much of its post-colonial history uh, from 1947 until 1991 was in some way or another a sort of planned centrally regulated uh, economy. Um, it was a place where, and this was the kind of India that Siddharth grew up in and it was actually also the India where I grew up in, uh, where sort of consumer products, wealth, and so on and so forth were were much less visible than they are now. Uh, In 1991, in response to various pressures, uh, India embraced on a so-called liberalization uh, and an opening of of the economy uh, to the world as a result of which, well, many things happened, uh, among which, however, are a very visible and very spectacular... Accumulation of wealth by some groups of the people of the population. Right, so this is sort of one I think very in, important contextual point that uh, I thought it would be worthwhile to to foreground here. And uh, this is the India that, especially uh, in the in the 2000s, uh, took on a very aggressive marketing campaign, selling itself as India shining uh, in advertising campaigns that one could see on the sides of buses in, in Germany, in the United States, and mm-hmm. so on. Um, of course, uh, many parts of India did not shine, right? And many parts of India, if anything, uh, became a lot less shiny, uh, became darker and murkier. Uh, and, and it's precisely, I think, this particular contrast uh, that, that somehow became much, has become much starker in the last two decades uh, that, that Siddharth's book tries to, to, to portray. Um, a second point that I wanted to bring up, uh, and, I'll, and you know, I, I, this is a biographical detail, but I'm going to say a little bit about it since it, I think, plays a very important role in Siddharth's writings in general and, and, and in this book in particular, uh, which is that Siddharth was born and raised in Shillong. Uh, which is in the northeast northeastern state of Meghalaya. Um, and now Meghalaya is one of a cluster of states in the northeast of India that are only connected to India by a sort of narrow isthmus of land that runs between Bhutan in the north and Bangladesh in the south. Um, this physical separation from mainstream India uh, reflect is reflected also in an often troubled relationship that this entire region has had uh, with with the indian nation states and and this has been sort of i think this relationship has been troubled in at least two ways right one is the sort of recurring history of of separatism and uh, you know often violent insurgency, insurgency movements uh, in various parts of this northeastern um, uh, sort of cluster of states, and the other, I, I'm sorry, the, the the violent sort of uprisings and insurgencies, and of course the, the equally if not more violent uh, counterinsurgency actions that are undertaken by the state uh, to sort of quell these uh, movements, right? So that's one important sort of marginality uh, that's worth mentioning. The other, of course, on a more day-to-day level, is the, the kind of sense of otherness that I think and that comes out in Siddharth's writings afflicts or affects people from these parts of, of India who who come and try and make their way in the world in, in Delhi or in, you know, in a factory town in, in Andhra Pradesh uh, or in Bombay and so on and so forth. Right. A kind of persistent uh, sort of pattern of at the least a sort of negative stereotyping and and more sort of direly a, a, an active uh, pattern of discrimination that people from the Northeast uh, experience. So I think this particular background uh, really informs Siddharth's perspective on India and, and, and I think is w- worth mentioning. And I think also awards accords his work and his writing a kind of very, in my view, in the context of works that have appeared recently on India, of a unique and angular perspective uh, on the new India. So without any further delay, uh, let me please welcome uh, Siddharth, who is going to read from his most recent book, The Beautiful and the Damned, A Portrait of the New
1: India. Thank you, Nikhil. Thank you, Carol. Can everybody hear me? Ah, Good. that's a very nice introduction, and I hope in our conversation we'll touch upon all these things the new India, the India shining um, as well as you know the the northeastern part of the region um, of the of the country that I sort of come from and that I sort of keep going back to in my writing. Um, you know, yes. sometimes deliberately, sometimes not deliberately, and yet, in in fact, the the new book, the nonfiction <laughs> book, wasn't supposed to be about the Northeast at all. It was supposed to be about the more visible, shining India. It was about supposed to be about Delhi and Bangalore, and it is about all these places. But I, f- I remember being a particular t- moment in the book when I find myself ending up writing about the Northeast, and and it, it sort of it sort of forces its way back in. And um, feeling both uh, puzzled but also pleased about the process, but I'm going to—I st- think these things we'll touch on in the conversation with Nikhil, and I hope you know in the question and answers. But just to be slightly contrarian, um, although in an unplanned way, the section I'm going to read from is actually not about the northeast or uh, even—it's actually about the very, very central part of India, um, and it's about the new India, but kind of in an angular way again. And I think that is a good word that Nikhil used. And it's basically about an Indian city called Bhopal, and it's from the introductory part of the book, and um, it's basically a story about uh, uh, because you know my my book, even the non-fiction book is about it's about characters, it's about people. Um, I'm trying to probe these questions about politics and economics and you know about societies, but very much by by looking at people. as characters, not, not so much as voices in the way I would as a journalist, but, but more as a fiction writer in, in trying to give them their own angularity in some sense. So this is about one of uh, these characters and it's um, in central India. I'll read for about maybe 20 minutes and then we can have the question and answers. In November 2004, I found myself in the city of Bhopal, pursuing a forgotten story. I was there to write a piece on the 20th anniversary of a disaster when a pesticide factory run by the American multinational union carbide spewed out toxic fumes and killed at least 3,000 people in 24 hours. In the two decades since then, the death toll had reached at least 20,000. While another 100,000 people were estimated by Amnesty International to be suffering chronic and debilitating illnesses caused by the lethal gas that had leaked out from the factory. When I arrived in Bhopal, I was told that I should meet a man called Abdul Jabbar. Even though no one outside the city had heard of him, I certainly hadn't. He had a reputation in Bhopal as someone who had done quite a bit to organize the victims of the disaster. He ran an organization for women widowed and rendered destitute by the disaster, working from a converted industrial shed in the old quarter of the city. It was a shoddily run place in many ways, with grimy toilets, battered sewing machines, a telephone kept, oddly enough, in the kitchen, Photographs of Gandhi and lesser-known Indian radicals, an office overflowing with paper, and a veranda where a display case contained hideous stuffed toys that stared at visitors with glassy eyes. Jabbar, who, was, who ran this place, claimed to have no faith in the West. He detested multinationals, especially Dow Chemicals, which had since acquired Union Carbide. But he disliked organizations like Greenpeace, too, even though they had tried to draw attention to the conditions in Bhopal so many years after the disaster. He did not take money from Western Outfits, a position that set him at odds with a vastly more efficient organization called the Bhopal Group for Information and Action. He did not have a website for his organization, although even the local reporters begged him to set one up. He claimed when I was first introduced to him that he didn't speak to Western reporters or to urban, upper-class Indians, which is what he took me to be. He refused to speak in English, even though he seemed to have a working knowledge of the language. For a soft-spoken man of benign, even nondescript appearance, short, pudgy, with a moustache and thick glasses, he was surprisingly truculent, and I came away from my initial meeting feeling rather disappointed. Nevertheless, one afternoon, I turned up to see the last 30 minutes of a regular weekly rally that he ran in a park across from the ladies' hospital. He was less rambling as a public speaker, focused but intimate with his audience. When he ended his speech, he didn't raise his voice in a shout, as Indian politicians tend to do. Instead, he said very softly, Naya Zamana, the new age, a phrase that the women closed emphatically by loud leaping to their feet and answering, Ayaga, will come. The slogan was repeated once more, the new age will come, softer and on a downbeat. And even before the response had come from the women, Jabbar had moved away, coiling up the wire trailing from his microphone. Soon after, he came up to me and said that it was a good time to talk if I wanted to talk to him, but he first had to take care of a small task. I accompanied Jabbar across the street to the ladies' hospital. An ambulance packed with passengers stood in the driveway. I caught a glimpse of a woman in the back and what looked like a baby in swaddling clothes. Go on to the house, Jabbar said. Drive safely. I'll come later. Then we walked back to the park, where Jabbar wheeled his Honda scooter out and asked me to climb on. During our ride through the jagged amorphous quarters of the old city, I discovered that the woman in the ambulance was Jabbar's wife, Yasmina, and that she had given birth to a boy the night before. The activist had become a father, a first in his life, a fact that in its intimacy and domesticity seemed a little incongruous with the utopian, large-scale issues that had been discussed in the park, but perhaps less incongruous than the fact that I, a stranger whom he didn't like, was being taken to Jabbar's house the same day his wife and infant son were coming home from the hospital. As Jabbar negotiated a path through the crowded marketplace, a furniture store caught his eye. He asked me to stay with the scooter while he went into the store, a room open to the street and packed with locally made furniture, most of it cobbled together out of plastic or cheap wood. What had attracted Jabbar's attention was an infant cradle of pink plastic with a mosquito net attached to it. Jabbar bargained briefly, bought the contraption, and handed it to me. The cradle had looked small in the store, but as I sat on the back seat of Jabbar's scooter, riding up narrow alleyways and under tiny bridges, it began to assume gargantuan proportions and seemed to be becoming larger. I had to shout at Jabbar to stop when I thought we were going to scrape against a wall. With frequent halts for me to dismount when we we had to cross particularly narrow stretches, we finally arrived at his house. There, I was introduced to Yasmina, a Kashmiri woman in her late twenties. She was dressed in a black hijab, her hair covered, but her face unveiled, and she looked exhausted. I saw the baby and encountered a squadron of mosquitoes that made me thankful that the cradle had come with a net. Relatives and neighbors passed in and out so fluidly as to leave little distinction between outdoors and indoors, between sitting room and bedroom. I drank tea and talked to Jabbar's neighbors. They were working class people who were proud of him, of the fact that he had become a father, of the trees he had got them to plant in the neighborhood, which was poor but wasn't squalid. Then it was time for Jabbar to head out again because he wanted me to meet people in the nearby slums. Jabbar's work, which I eventually then began to have a chance to observe through many long mornings and many afternoons spent at his office, the flow of time punctuated by the cry of the muezzin from a nearby mosque involved an unending set of challenges and rather small victories. His organization had filed a case in the Supreme Court asking the Indian government to distribute the full amount of compensation money that it had taken from Union Carbide. Two decades after the event, the government had paid out no more than $80 to each person, and even that money had to be divided with corrupt lawyers and officials. People who came to Jabbar for help included those who weren't members of his organization, such as a middle-aged man who showed up one afternoon and began to cry with rage and frustration as he told us his story. He was a waiter in a tea shop and who had been affected by the gas. The government had finally released his initial payment to the lawyer that he had needed to hire to make his case for compensation. The lawyer invited the waiter into the chamber and asked him to take half the money and leave the rest as fees. When the waiter protested, saying that he had already paid the lawyer's fees, the lawyer called in a few men, thrashed the waiter, and threw him out. When the waiter tried to file a police report at the local station, the officer in charge laughed at him. Jabbar's forehead grew furrowed as he heard this story. He asked for the name of the lawyer. Then he called other lawyers to ask them what they thought of the man. When he had verified from a few different sources that the man was known to be both corrupt and violent, he asked the waiter for the name of the policeman who had refused to help him. Then he called a senior police officer and told him the story. He made an appointment for for the waiter with the senior officer hung up and then asked someone in his office to talk the waiter through the procedure he would have to follow when he made the senior official. The whole process took about an hour, in which time Jabbar earned the waiter's gratitude, confirmed his reputation in the slums and tenements of Bhopal as an honest, pugnacious man and achieved nothing in terms of furthering his organization's presence on outside his city. It was very different from the way the Bhopal Group for Information and Action was run by Satinath Sarangi. I had gone to visit Satyu, as Sarangi is known, a few days earlier. Satyu met me at the site where he was putting up a new building for his clinic, Sambhavna. It would serve as both headquarters for his organization and as an Ayurvedic clinic for gas victims. The new clinic was set back from the crowded roads and settlements of the old city. The red brick building, Satyu said, was planned to be ecologically sustainable. It would be kept cool by a complicated system of airflow and by water circulating around the walls. The garden where we sat and talked would be used to grow organic herbs. The patients, when the clinic was in operation, would receive Ayurvedic medicines and massages. It was as different from Jabbar's chaotic operation as Satyu was from Jabbar. Tall, bearded, sporting a ponytail, he had the look of an aging rock singer. He wore a turban wrapped loosely around his head and a black shirt proclaiming, Toulouse 27-9, 2001, 2002, 2003, which he explained to me as commemorating a chemical plant explosion in Toulouse and where he had gone in 2003 to attend the conference. Satyu was handsome and articulate, alert to the ways of the world. And while Jabbar didn't like interacting with the West, Satyu thrived on it, even if his West was the alternative, countercultural West of green anti globalization politics. I could see how much this interaction characterized Satyu's organization from the Indian Americans and the Bard College undergraduates who sat around his office to the design and principles of his new clinic. So when Satyu said that Jabbar was inefficient and outdated, it was hard to dismiss his charges. They had been colleagues once in the immediate aftermath of the disaster. At that time, when the Union carbide swiftly dissociated itself from the local factory, initially refusing to even reveal the composition of the gas, claiming because it was a proprietary formula, and when senior Indian politicians and officials fled the city in private aircrafts, a large number of disparate personalities Left-leaning political parties and groups had come together under a loose coalition called Morcha, or forum. But Morcha splintered a few years after the event, when the pressures of the original disaster was no longer available, and Jabbar and Satyu had gone their very different ways. Satyu had a terrific website, where information and reports were collated and organized neatly. But what he didn't have were the working-class women, slum dwellers, the toothless old men one encountered constantly in Jabbar's office. At the premises of Satya's office, the gas victims seemed to appear only on the posters and the walls. I found this paradox fascinating, especially in the new India, a place supposed to have become exposed to the world, or in the other words, the West, through globalization. So when I met Jabbar, I pushed him saying that I could understand why he didn't like Western corporations, but I wanted to know what he had against Greenpeace, against Western NGOs trying to help the people he cared about." Jabbar began to talk about the arrogance of showing up among impoverished people with laptops and digital cameras. ''They fly in for a few days,'' he said, and I knew the verb fly was as important here as the phrase few days. When Jabbar went to Delhi, he didn't even buy a ticket for a reserved berth, let alone an air-conditioned coat. He traveled in a general compartment um, with no assigned seating and no limit to the number of people who could get on, a free-for-all realm where every inch of space is claimed by some part of a human body. They stay in that fancy hotel, Lakeview, Jabbar said, where it's 5,000 rupees a night. It's not, I told him. It's less than half the amount, but I was relieved I wasn't staying there. I knew that Jabbar approved of the fact that I was staying at the more downmarket Indian coffee house hotel. Jabbar was undeterred by my correction of the room rates. It's still half a month's wages for people here. How will poor people even talk to someone living there in what looks like luxury, let alone march with them? We were talking in Jabbar's office, and he led me up to a photograph that showed a young man with thick glasses and an almost emaciated body. The man was Shankar Guha Nyogi an activist who had tried to organize mill workers in the neighboring state of Chhattisgarh through the 80s and the 90s. The workers had been mostly tribal people, living in tenements and kept in virtual bondage to mill owners and moneylenders. When Niyogi came to Bhopal, Jabbar said, he asked me to take him to a market to buy a frock for his daughter. Uh, by a frock he means a dress, uh, in case it might seem an unfamiliar word. He kept pushing away everything I showed him, saying he wanted something cheaper. Eventually, I got frustrated, and I asked him what his problem was. We were in an ordinary bazaar, after all, and the frocks were fairly cheap. And what Niyogi told me was, Jabbar, the people I organized wouldn't be able to afford these for their daughters. If my daughter, who plays with their children, is seen wearing far better clothes, how will they take me seriously? Niyogi was killed in the early 90s by thugs hired by the mill owners, although his wife stayed on and continues to organize them. In the late 80s, Jabbar himself had come close to being killed when buying vegetables in the market one day. He was shot in the stomach by a man working for a slum landlord, angered by Jabbar's advocacy on behalf of the tenants. The shooter was relatively inexperienced, so even though he got close to Jabbar, his aim faltered at the last minute. But apart from that single dramatic incident, Jabbar's worries seemed to be mostly about prosaic things. He had a weak heart. And our conversations included breaks for the many pills he had to swallow. His organization operated on very little money, and although Satyu, in a critical mo- in, a, in a moment of criticism, had talked of Jabar amassing money, I had seen no such signs of wealth on him, either at work or at home. One morning, Jabbar came to the hotel where I was staying. There was a coffee shop on the ground floor that was a popular meeting place for the local journalists. They gathered there every morning for a couple of hours, exchanging notes before heading, before heading out to their newspaper offices or to their reporting beats. Jabbar hoped to meet the journalists and hand out press releases about the compensation case coming up in the Supreme Court. He was popular with most of the local reporters, but his arrival that morning was upstaged by the appearance of a former chief minister, a Congress politician. A smooth, fair-skinned man with gold-framed glasses and big teeth, the politician entered the coffee house with followers and a television crew in tow. The reporters, most of whom I'd got to know and thought of as fairly committed journalists, were suddenly transformed, laughing at every joke the politician made, hanging on to every statement of his, even though he began with the announcement that he had come not for a press conference but for an intellectual exchange. When Jabbar approached our table, The politician greeted him affably, but none of the reporters had time for the badly typed press releases Jabbar had brought with him. It was like watching a force field of power distorting everything within its range, twisting the faces of the reporters. Jabbar sat in the shadows, towards the back, waiting for an opportune moment to hand out his press releases. It didn't come. Instead, one of the politician's followers, a man with ostentatious cast marks on his forehead, whispered that it was his birthday. The politician laughed with delight. We must celebrate, he said, rubbing his hands together. He took out some moisturizing lotion and then spread it on his hands. Another minion stepped forward and announced that it was his birthday as well. (laughs) Even better, the politician said. He snapped his fingers. Waiter, come here. Order birthday cakes from the pastry shop at the market. One of the reporters leaned forward and informed the politician that the birthday boys were vegetarians and that cakes would contain eggs as an ingredient. <laughs> there was a moment of silence. And then the politician said, eggless cakes then and the phrase ran like a refrain through the mouths of reporters and photographers, minions and waiters, the phrase eggless cakes, eggless cakes, as if the man had turned into Solomon solving in an instant the most fiendish of paradoxes. Jabbar and I walked out just as the pink eggless cakes arrived, borne high in the air by turbaned waiters escorted to the table by a couple of the politicians armed security guards. Outside in the lunchtime chaos of rickshaws, scooters and cars. I remarked to Jabbar that his venture to the hotel had been in vain. I'll come back tomorrow, he said. Eventually, they will look at the press releases and they will write about them. The politician will be gone in an hour, but I will always be around.
0: Thank you, uh, I That was a really excellent passage. And uh, I thought, uh, you know, there are so many wonderful things that I liked about that. Uh, from the image of you sort of holding this cradle on the back of Jabbar's scooter, maneuvering through the, the, the narrow sort of alleys of Bhopal, um, to the, you know, the really wonderfully detailed account you give of what exactly Jabbar did or and does, continues to do perhaps, for for the people who come to him, right? This account of what he did for the waiter, the waiter who was sort of bashed up by, uh, you know, the lawyers, thugs or whatever. Um, And you you sort of provide a kind of very detailed account, uh, which I think raises a question that I'll lead off with, which is, you know, what, what, in your view, what is the, what is Indian democracy, or what is uh, the status of Indian democracy? Because this is something we, you know, we hear about a lot. The <coughs> world's largest democracy, and you know, it is a, a nation that votes a lot, uh, and will be going to the polls next year. Uh, and you know, I mean, it is in some ways a remarkable thing that it is, despite this history of poverty and you know this extremely staggering heterogeneity, that it is a democracy, right? But at the same time what kind of recourse do non-elites have, right? Do, and, and this, you gave one account of what had to be done to procure some kind of redress, mm-hmm. right? But it raised a larger question, right, I guess, which is what is the status in
1: your view of the democratic process? Well, I think it's changed a lot. In I mean, we, we have to understand that it's not a static process. I mean, I think it's not, and it's not even something particular to India. I think the going-ons in America currently tell you that, you know, yeah. it, it, it is not a static thing. These things are, you know, open to pressures of various, susceptible to pressures of various kinds. And you can't look at democracy or democracy voting in isolation from other things. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at, uh, this is fairly, I think if you look at the statistics, something like 30 percent, of the Indian parliament are basically people who are, um, who who are whose who's fathers. It's extremely gender specific, and it's extremely caste specific, and it's extremely region specific. But if you look at the statistics, I think the recent ones are something like 30% are essentially hereditary. They are basically people whose whose fathers, or in some case their mothers, have had a parliamentary post before. That's one third. And if you look at the Indian democracy, and if you look at the Congress party, and the big contending, the main, the parties are, the sort of, you know, the, the equivalent to the Republicans, the Democrats here, are the Congress party, which is seen as liberal in certain cultural, um, religious questions. Uh, in terms of the marketplace, they're both fairly you know, neoliberal in their politics, but the Congress is seen as a little bit more open, a little bit more uh, you know, uh, secular. That's the word that they use for themselves, as opposed to the BJP, which is much more a Hindu majoritarian upper caste right-wing party, basically. Um, But the argument that you see that in terms of the hereditary politics is that, you know, you see that in the Congress party, the Gandhi, the legacy of the Gandhi family, uh, that, you know, is it going to be, are we going to have another prime minister? Is it going to be Rahul Gandhi who's, you know, who comes from this long, I mean, if you look at that family, they bridge their older in their their presence as a political power than post-colonial India. They go back before, they go back to colonial India. But the thing is that, you know, with against this, you have, say, the other contending, say, BJP, the, the BJP, um, the Gujarat Chief Minister Narendra Modi, and his argument that he's a self made man, unlike the, unlike, the, unlike the Gandhis. And in some ways, he is a self made man, uh, in the sense that he's risen to the organizations of this extremely polit- parochial sectarian party. He's a man who's extremely pro business, pro upper caste under him in gujarat in 2002 there were these massive riots which um you know which led to you know targeted muslims uh, which was and he was you know and you know one i mean there's again, these things, these cases are ongoing, but it happened under his watch. There are people who have claimed that he is directly involved in it, and he was embarrassing enough even to the George Bush administration for him to be denied a visa in 2005, which is fascinating, just to bring it, I I like to bring the conversation, you know, just to give you some reference point. Even the Bush administration found Modi embarrassing enough to actually deny him a visa, although he was invited to England recently to address a very large conference of, you know, essentially businessmen, because People look at its investment. so turn to, to, to back to the question of democracy, I think on pay, paper it does look fantastic because you know, the Indian government is good at doing certain things, like it's actually good at you know, distributing ballot boxes into yep. all, and you know the television cameras love to do this. Yep. But the ballot boxes and putting a slip of paper in itself is not enough. Yep. it's about access to power. and Jabbar, in some sense, what is ironic about him is that he actually represents a kind of old mode of organizing. And that's one of the paradoxes that I was trying to follow. The idea about new India, when I began reporting this book, that India is being changed completely by information technology. This is the argument that was being made again and again by countless articles, countless books, all the way from Tom Friedman, this is the new India. And my argument is that in terms of power, Actually, the new India is still the old India. The new, you know, this is what, I mean, you know, I don't think, you know, that that these were the arguments that were being made, that now we'll have a real democracy because everybody has a cell phone. And I actually very much question this in my book. So, Jabbar's mode of organizing, I mean, you know, it's a very, it's, it, I, I want to say it's, it is, in, it is it, there is something quite Indian about it, and it, there is this mode of resistance, mm-hmm. which I think is also very true of the subcontinent and the people, mm-hmm. but that's not, that's not easily translatable to the ballot boxes and the parliamentary parties.
0: Absolutely, and I think that really came out, uh, you know, just again in that account what's so illustrative is you know the, that waiter he first goes through the institutional channels mm-hmm. right he goes to the police officer who laughs at him mm-hmm. and then that doesn 't work so this whole other sort of mechanism of redress has to be resorted to that entails mm-hmm. you know Jabbar making some phone calls calling like a bigger police officer to sort of chastise mm-hmm. the, the guy who did it and I think that that comes out really well that there's this talk of radical change mm-hmm. and and, and so on, mm-hmm. but, you know, many, in many ways, the institutions, the mechanisms mm-hmm. uh, through which things get done mm-hmm. may not be that different, right? Uh, that said, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the sort of very compelling tensions uh, in this book is, you know, the one between a, a very palpable sort of and really intense kind of aspiration mm-hmm. right that uh, you know you see, for instance, I mean in many parts of your book, but you know in the kind of students who who go and study at Arundham Chowdhury's mm-hmm. Indian Institute of this is a sort of uh, a new business school that has perhaps not you know a bit questionable in its antecedents and in its methods, um, but just the energy that that is detectable. And you know, to some extent, his Arundham Chaudhary, as you describe in your book, very justifiable claim that look, I educate this many thousand people Mm -hmm. a year, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the famous Indian institutes of management Mm -hmm. are state-subsidized, they educate a few hundred Mm -hmm. a year, and those people then go off and work overseas somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you have this intense aspiration Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, that's perhaps made possible by the changes of the last two decades, uh, or at least sort of accentuated. On the other hand, you have the persistence, if not the the kind, if not the actual worsening uh, of, of the practices of, uh, you know, discrimination and violence based on, uh, you know, caste or religion or gender uh, sort of categories, right? So I guess my question to you is this. In your view, what what are the, Possibilities, or or have the possibilities for young people, Mm. uh, you know, going out into the world Mm. uh, in in India today. I mean, in your view, in the new India, are they? uh, What would, if you had to offer an assessment,
1: uh, what would you say? Well, you know, I like to look at it through specific lenses, but you know, if I look at Arindam Choudhury's Institute. And, you know, I call him a Gatsby figure. That yep. was so it's dramatic in the same way, from rags to riches. And you see this in, it's not particular to India. You see it in China. You see it in, you see it in many of the so-called BRICS economies, you know, uh, these new flamboyant sort of self-made types. But I like to put the self-made within quotes because nobody's really self-made, nowhere. Not even, even the original Gatsby, nobody's really self-made. There's... But it's it's a wonderful myth. which just not to deny the kind of energy that Arindam Chaudhary has, the flamboyance, or the intelligence. Uh, what is interesting, though, of course, is the book doesn't have that chapter in the Indian edition yeah. because of uh, you know because he had it he, said he had it stopped by the courts. And in fact, he was on television recently in February demanding that I be arrested. That he would, that, not demanding, he said he would have me arrested. Uh, it's quite in, uh, you know interesting. But you know, I mean, I think. Yes, there's a kind of energy among an aspiration there was among the middle class, which is to say it's a significant number of people, because India is a huge country, it's a huge population, so, you know, it's a very, very, you know, significant, these are, these are people among whom I would place myself, I belong to that category, my family is very much Essentially urban, you've had some kind of English education, you've had some kind of, you know, your family's had some kind of stability, there's often you know, you're often upper or middle caste, basically, in your, in your dimensions. You know, you have this urbanization. You've made the transition to modernity. Now you have to work hard. But, you know, once you've got all these tools, once yep. and, if, and I push it back to myself. I mean, how did I get all this education? I mean, my grandparents were peasants. My father was a refugee from the partition, you know. But my father had a government job. It was not because of some corporate social responsibility scheme. My father had a government job that had this kind of, that was probably, problematic, didn't pay much, but that allowed this kind of enormous stability within, you know, for a good section of our life. This is given the partition. This is given the violence. This is given the fact that we actually lost everything, you know, that we were refugees. We started from zero. There was this enormous stability and, you know, I had these other privileges, which I can't just ignore. I was, I was a boy. That was a very big part of it. I was much more privileged than my sister even though my sister had a very good education too but i was much more privileged in terms of the choices that i was allowed to make so i think you know these these aspirants that we are talking about the kind of people say that tom friedman used to rave about that has to be understood in this context they didn't come out of nowhere i was subsidized by the indian government my education was subsidized by the indian government i never paid anything more than 20 rupees a month, which is like, you know, 40 cents entire, all the way up to master's. Uh, And that's not to be, you know, that is, that is not something that you can dismiss. What happened post 91? And, you know, that basically the Indian elite started saying, we should do away with these kind of subsidies because they are not meritocratic. None of us, I mean, I did not make it because just out of sheer merit. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was also made by a social system. And so, you know, that's one of the the things that happened with the new energies is that there was a kind of a break, rupture created Mm -hmm. between the elites. And that's the top 150, 200 million in the country. And they vary widely. They vary widely all the way to the enormous super-rich, the 60-plus billionaires, all the way down to somebody who's actually making just a middle-class salary and who needs to keep working every month. So that's a very big band. But beneath them, we are talking about a country yeah. where, let's say, you know, I mean, I don't like to use figures too much because, again, figures have been disputed hugely, you know, as, you know in, in India. Yeah. But, you know, if you look at just, you know, children under the age of five suffering from malnutrition, that's the biggest numbers in India. It's bigger than South Sub-Saharan Africa. It was 44% in, in the early 90s. After 20 years of growth, it's 43%, you know. In terms of, you know, if you, if you look at, other things. I mean, if you've seen the, uh, one of the new interesting things is the Amartya Sen uh, piece in the New York Review books about women in India, which, you know, I have, I have, I have significant, I think he's too kind to us, to Indians. I am much harder than this. But, you know, if you look at the map of the male-female birth ratios, they don't actually map the poor. It's like the wealthier states are precisely the ones where there's a declining ratio of female births. Yep. And the poorer states or the less developed states are precisely where it's higher. And that is, again, interesting to look at. So, you know, but if you look at India, beneath the sort of the top 100, 200 million that we've been talking about, and for the last 20 years, the discourse has become entirely that it's about them. I don't want to dismiss the energy they have or the hard work, but it's built on a larger social system. And one of the things that's happened, I think, in India is that even the middle class, until I would say the late 80s, was aware that they were connected to the majority, the poor. Whether they liked it or not, they knew they were connected. Now in the new dispensation, there's a real mental break between, mm-hmm. and you can see this in the, even some of the language that comes up. Uh, you know, in, in, there's a new op-ed piece, again, to do with masculinity, yeah. uh, and you know, it uses the phrase, feral, feral men. Yeah. Uh, there's a certain language, a very new, new, you know, and maybe in a way it's good, it's good to be honest, to say we really dislike the unwashed masses, yeah. but there's a real break that has happened between the so-called yeah. masses. And, and there, it's really an incredible amount of turmoil, which connects us back to the rural India. Rural India is 400 million people, roughly, de- roughly 400 million people depend on agriculture for a living. Yeah. If you look at like the Indian labor organization's statistics for, you know, what kind of jobs are available for women? for instance, I was very interested in this when I was working on the chapter on waitresses, because you see many waitresses. This is a new category in in India. You didn't see, you know, growing up, it was a job that was traditionally done by lower class men. But now in the new India that these chances have, these opportunities have come up. So I'm not going to dismiss them right off, but I spent a great deal of time with a waitress in the book trying to figure out what it means, this new opportunity. But if you look at the statistics, the largest category after agriculture, the next category for women, is construction work is the same as men and then below that the next category and this is very gender specific is maid servants mm-hmm. you know so India is an absurd place in yeah. many ways and that's I think what I've been constantly trying to engage with yeah. and I think the new India is, is a lie in many ways, because it's really a much more complicated, absurd place. Yes, there's a huge amount of flamboyance and energy at the top, but it's begun to wear off a little yeah, bit, actually no. post 2008, the financial crash, yeah. that, that even in India, even among the new rich, yeah. uh, there is more, it's, it's not quite the way it was in its heyday. Right,
0: no, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, very palpable that India is you know, less shiny now yes, yes. than it was 10 years ago. Mm, yeah. uh, and uh, just to sort of elaborate on the, the op-ed piece that you mentioned yes. uh, by Lavanya Shankar, I believe. Uh, some, yes, uh, some, I don't know. I don't know her. I, yeah, this was a piece that uh, uh, addressed the problem of um, sort of. I, a, anyway, it addressed the kind of recent hubbub uh, around uh, sort of Indian men and uh, their sort of predatory nature, and and it 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 was sparked by a horrific. Um, gang rape of a woman in Delhi. Uh, some of you would have heard of it. Um, what was sort of striking about this op-ed was, of course, the distinction she makes between um, good Indian men and, and bad Indian men. Mm-hmm. The bad Indian men being part of this feral, mm-hmm. I believe is the adjective she uses, uh, feral sort of population of you know, people from the villages, right, who somehow come to the cities and you know, are sort of unleashed there. Uh, or, and, and it's interesting, I was thinking actually of your book when I read that uh, op-ed piece, because of course a large part of your book is, or a good part of your book is sort of talking to some of these migrant workers who have come from, you know, villages or small towns yes. and, and trying to find work, right? Yes. And, and what was really striking is, of course, you portray one such predator who is precisely not from that background, right and who is from a kind of, he's a successful executive and so on so i was thinking about how this was in a sense a direct retort to this strain of public conversation
1: right. right yeah well i mean i think when this when this thing happened in december it was i mean in a sense you know i think i think it's fantastic that people went out on the streets to yep. protest that this grew something the Guardian did a f- wonderful report that had a map of the predators and the woman and her boyfriend. And she got picked up at a bus stop where I used to live in Munirka. In Munirka. I, I, Which is this sort of a uh, uh, kind of a village Within a very very wealthy southern De- South Delhi, uh, but it's kind of close to the university, so it's kind of a because it's a village, it's kind of unpaved, it, it's cheaper. It's so even though it's geographically located in South Delhi, you can afford to live there. So you know, I lived there as a journalist, you know, not not very well paid journalist. A lot of students live there. Um, and you get these, you know, there are a lot of people from the Northeast. And in fact, Munirka is mentioned in the book, because yeah. Yeah. not only did I live there, but one of the waitress, the waitress, sir, that I, Esther, one of Esther's friends lives there. So I go back to this old neighborhood to actually, and there was this enormous sort of threat of violence against, against women. And one of the things that was happening was uh, that, you know, again, a very small segment of women have benefited from these service jobs that have come up but which are enormously exploitative in their own terms. Yeah. But then you have these, I mean, you know, India, India is complicated. So, you know, you have local men who seem themselves, you know, hierarchically superior actually to the women, A, because of gender, but B, also because of caste and ethnicity, and you know, this, is, this is, comes out. But then they see also women having these jobs, which they can't have. So it creates this incredible dynamics and, you know, the thing is that India didn't want to, the Indian media or the Indian government doesn't want to talk about these things. So the Indian corporations don't want to talk about these things. If you look at the way the recruitment patterns go, and again, I did some of this in terms of kind of an immersion reporting. Like one of the things that I did was, um, and partly this book was began as a project that came off that, is that when The Guardian asked me to work at a call center, um, this was in 2004, so almost 10 years ago because the call centers were these incredible sort of you know new indian jobs for young indian people and they were essentially hiring young indians who were coming from far away including from the northeast now, one of the things is once I applied for a job, I would have this recruiter calling me on my cell phone every day, asking me how many more boys and girls I could bring in from Shillong, wow. because they speak good English. But she would say, but the problem is you guys don't want to stay for more than a few months. And I, and I, and I was pretending to be this person who was still yeah. from Shillong. I said, this place is lousy. Why would we want to be here? It's actually, it's, it's really much nicer back home, actually. You know, uh, this is this is a hard place to be, to be in. So, you know, there was this, so it's a very complex place. So in terms of the protests that happened, happened in Delhi, people were very, very agitated because it was brutal. And the Indian government, of course, responded with, you know, the police with baton charges and tear gas. Yeah. And I think the most, the most horrible moment was when this girl was airlifted out of the Delhi hospital to Singapore. And it, it, this superpower that says it doesn't actually have the technology. And you know, she died um, in Singapore. But I think it was more like a cynical calculation. But you know, I think the problem is, and there are many problems, one of the things is we have to talk about Indian masculinity. And Indian masculinity is problematic not just because tradition. There is the whole New India argument that the new Indians are completely free of the old biases. But it's not as simple as that. Tradition isn't always bad. Tradition also has, you know, within itself actually emancipatory radical potentials. If you know in South Asian history, this has been true throughout. And modernity is not this sort of, you know, this blessing without any kind of complications. It is true that you have huge number of urban migrant laborers, workers, who are just being exploited. And this is true for both the men and the women who are just cycled through. It is also true that agriculture in India is an enormous crisis because in the last 20 years, it has been completely stripped of state, any kind of subsidies, and it has been opened up to the market. And the other thing is, India is also environmentally a huge disaster, partly because of the kind of breakneck very, very crony capitalist development has done. And it's within this that this kind of um, you know, this kind of violence is becoming more common. But we don't hear about the rural violence. For instance, yeah. there's been incredible violence there's incredible violence against Dalit women, for instance, or When I talked about 2002 and Mr. Modi being invited to talk in UK among the entrepreneurs, there was enormous violence against Muslim women in Gujarat in 2002, and that's the urban middle class likes to keep quiet about, about the kind of violence against women. For instance, the armed forces to come back to the Northeast, Mm -hmm. uh, Manipur or Kashmir, where I was in July. There is enormous, I I spent a great deal of time reporting in Kashmir and I was in Shopian where two women had drowned and who had been raped and murdered, the people believe, But you know, in Kashmir, the army is not susceptible to civil courts. It is, you know, it's under the Armed Forces Special Powers of Act, as it is in Manipur. This enormous violence that happens in Manipur, in Kashmir, in central India against the indigenous populations. That's perpetrated by the police, paramilitary forces, army. And the urban middle class wants to keep quiet about it. So, you know, I like to bring, I think it's important to bring these things into the conversation and to complicate, um, you know, the, the urban middle class's outrage, justifiable outrage, uh, anger, but it's limited. It, it, it needs to be widened.
0: Okay. Um, I have one more question, I guess, uh, you know, to just sort of bring it back to my introduction and uh, bring it back to the Northeast, um, you know, which is, again, as I said, an area that is, uh, has been... Well, it's geographically sort of distant and, and, and also has played a sort of troubled and as Part of the idea of India, right? So I guess uh, I have a very general question. I mean, what what is the position of the northeast, the northeastern states, in in the new India? I mean, uh, you know, in your view, just uh, you know, a few thoughts about. Um, I mean, I, I just remember when I was growing up, it was, you know, you couldn't go there, uh, you know, or you needed. Even if, even if you're an Indian, you needed to, to go to some parts, you needed sort of spe- specific kinds of documents to go because there was, you know, many, some parts were That's under, still true. Yeah. They, the inner Line permit. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. is
1: a colonial legislation. Like most of, almost all of, the, all of these legislations are.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. I guess my question is, uh, what is the position of, in your view, of the Northeast
1: in the new India? Well, I mean, I, I write about a little bit about it in the book in the sense that the main character in the last chapter is this young waitress who's from the northeast, and um, you know, the name is Esther. That's not a real name; uh, I changed the name at her request. And you know, within within the sort of metropolitan urban, it's it's complicated. On the one hand, they are often they often speak English. They often they're often lighter skinned, so that, that goes down very well with the sort of the, the Indian sort of hierarchy, you know, the internal hierarchy. At the same time, they're also, you know, from the Northeast and they are seen as Mongoloid people and that's sort of down on the hierarchy. So, you know, it, it's this complicated mix, yeah. they're women, that's also that's also down on the hierarchy, you know, that's, it, so all these things have to be taken into account. They, they are, they're not seen in any kind of complexity. It's, a, it's almost, I want to say, it's a kind of a colonial, I mean, I mean, sometimes I find that the Indians think about, or, you know, I want to qualify the phrase Indian. Certain the Indian elites think about the Northeasterners or in the same way as the colonial hierarchies were true in the way the British thought about the Indians, you know. Uh, uh, and they are seen as, you know, distant and as a kind of a service class. And there, and the Northeast as seen, is seen as a kind of an exotic travel place. It's associated in the mind very simply with music. And in fact, I have a very specific story about this. In Delhi, I, mean, I was spending a great deal of time in Delhi when I was working on the book. I would get these very young, hip, um, young Delhi, you know, college journalists, basically just out of college, very, very hip that, you know, they would keep asking me whether I knew somebody from Shillong called Lu Majao, Lu Majao, And, you know, they said it in a particular way that I couldn't quite catch the name. And I would often say, you know, this is like, you know, I was trying to interview somebody in some, you know, uh, they were quite, some of them were quite sweet, I knew them. And they would come and say, do you know Lou know Majao? And I said, no, I don't, I you know, would say it irritatedly. And then someday, one day the f- name, this phrase clicked in my head. And I said, listen, who on earth are you talking about? And why should I know this person? He said, oh, he's a great musician, man. He plays a thing. And, and, and then the penny dropped. I said, are you talking about Lou? He's still alive? And they were talking about this guy. When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, who used to play in this Shillong band called Great Society. And we used to make fun of him because he had the habit of wearing tight denim shorts in a very, very cold weather. You know, Shillong is quite cold, especially when I was growing up. But Lu insisted on going around wearing his tight denim shorts, no matter how cold it was like freezing. And Lou was the you know, it was like this sort of Shillong was a very small town in spite of all its riots. Lou was this, he was almost like an aging uncle, eccentric uncle, you know, he wasn't that old actually. He was maybe like 10 years older than me, but you know, when you're 14, everybody's kind of old, you know, and, and, and Lou was this guy, you know, who would play, who was, who was like, you know, when you're 14, we would go, you know, there would be this rock, there would be like the one rock concert on a perfect spring day in the year, and the entire town would sort of be out there. This wonderful. And Lou would be there in his tight denim shorts, playing Rolling Stone, and he would hump the mic. I'm sorry, you know, but this is what he would do. And, and we would all cheer, like you know, we were like, "This is the great thing." I said, 20 years later, I realized that the greatest band has actually, because of the globalization, has started playing in Delhi, and Lou Major has become this. This guy with long (laughs) hair, this eccentric uncle figure from my youth has become like this great star figure for a certain degree of Delhi youth, but it didn't last long. You don't hear their names anymore. I think that, again, it had to do with the economy had a kind of, you know, there would suddenly, there was a lot of blues bands and clubs. I think it began to collapse. But, so in terms of the Northeast, that was the perception to a degree. But within that, I mean, the Northeast is a tremendously complicated, place and heterogeneous. with heterogeneous and you know with incredible politics and art uh, you know, it's very, very alive. That there's just no interest in. People just want to, don't, they, they have no interest in that at all. And the Northeast is also its own space. It's actually, it looks to Delhi and Bombay and the West only. I mean, for instance, Korean operas, South Korean operas are very, very popular in the Northeast. So mm-hmm. The Northeast is in a different kind of, you know, there's other kinds of globalization yeah. happening there as well. So, you know. Eastward. I, kind yeah, of eastward. Kind of but also, and then, you know, the Northeast is also violence because it's in the heart of climate change. There are dams that are being built all over the Brahmaputra, and there's massive sort of, you know, wonderful sort of, you know, peasant agitation, worker agitations. There's a very charismatic uh, young mass. He's an essayist and a writer. Uh, he leads this mass leader. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of turmoil. But in Delhi or Bombay or even Calcutta, there's, people aren't aware of this. There's just this sort of, you know, in this, it's, like a, it's like an exotic place you go for adventure holidays, basically.
0: Okay. Um, so I think uh, we can now, thank you, Siddharth, but uh, we can now take some
1: questions from the audience. And
0: and how would you prefer to do it? Take a few questions and then
1: respond? or Sure, that might be, that might be more better in terms yep. of time. Yep. And I would love questions about writing, by the way. I mean, I know we've talked mostly about, and I think partly with a nonfiction book, but I would, I would love to talk about, um, you know, more aesthetic questions as well. That's also important.
0: Yeah, that,
1: that, well, I'm actually, I spent a great deal of time with Arundhati in July. Um, I was interviewing her for a magazine piece I'm doing. And uh, I was traveling in Kashmir with her, actually. Uh, so that, that's interesting that you bring that up. But you know, I mean, I think there, on the one hand, writing has become a career in a, in a very, very big way in India. And it's a b- bigger market. There is this new middle class, so there are writers. All the literary festivals. There are well, the, there are all the literary festivals, and there are all the, the the malls. There's a kind of you know, there are writers who write for. Uh, it's a very who are writing for the new the, the new emerging middle classes. It very much panders to nationalism to their sense of nationalism. It's very very. Um, they they often come from ba- backgrounds like banking or marketing. And, and, you know, they use Hindu sort of majoritarian symbols. Um, and this is one kind of Indian writing uh, which has to be taken into account. Another kind of Indian writing is more liberal, you know, in its in its views, but is also ultimately about the elites, essentially. It's really unable to engage with, I mean, I mean they're unable to engage with what's happening. I don't even want to say outside the cities because even the cities are actually quite complex spaces as you as you, as you very well know. They are also, cities are also like worlds within themselves. So they are many worlds within themselves. But, so you have that. Having said that, I will say that you know, Arundhati, or there are other, there are writers. I can even think of a very young writer from the Northeast, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of them, or from Kashmir. Uh, often people maybe who've experienced some level of marginality, whether it's because of gender, whether it's because of ethnicity, whether it's because of where they grew up, whether it's because they were interested in these questions. So there is a certain Indian writing that's actually quite interesting but it's not the one that often comes up that's visible. Uh, it, it's not the one that's faded at the literary festivals, for instance. Mm-hmm. The literary festivals are more, I think, you know, I don't think it's an accident that they happen in places like Jaipur or Goa mm-hmm. or Kerala. It, it's like, you know, you listen to a book but you also have a nice holiday. Mm-hmm. I, I always joke about, you yep. know, you, you, know you, you also get, you know, you, you get a, you have a nice little holiday and literature is almost a kind of, the novel is almost like an accessory to, to the nice sort of, you know, uh, vacation basically, um, you know. Uh, so, so you know, I, I am critical of that uh, a little bit, but there is a lot of very interesting writing happening uh, in various languages. It's much more vibrant than you would think is the case if you just follow it from a distance or from the festivals or just the few circles in the cities. but. When I say the cities, I mean, I mean particular places, because even in the cities, there are little magazines, there's a lot of writing in languages, there's a lot of translations, actually. For instance, Roy gets translated quite f- rapidly into various, various other Indian languages. I met this, you know, um, you know so, so it's very vibrant underneath that sort of glossy sort of layer, but there it seems very similar and apolitical or sometimes actually quite uh, conservative in its politics. Maybe there's a mix of both of that. Um, I'm interested. You mentioned the uh, you mentioned Roy, and then you mentioned the protests around the rape case, and mm. then you mentioned that there are certain things that people will protest about and not others. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about cultures of protest, new cultures of protest in the new India, um, whether it's you know middle class protests on the Hazara or other other ways in which you know protest has changed. Like, are there are there
0: still the similar kind of action? Idioms for protest that we had before
1: neoliberalism, you know, peasant or union protests, and how does that change? Well, I would say yes. I mean, in the in the if you if you if you look at, for instance, if you look at Assam, I mean, if you there, there's a great there's a or if you look at you know if you look at um, you know if you look at say certain sites that are coming up like nuclear reactors, if you look at dams, there are massive protests that happen, and. To a degree, they are traditional in the sense of you know darndarnas, the, the the whole lexicon of Indian protest, you know the chakka jams and the le- the dharnas, and people do use cell phones to communicate with each other. Absolutely. What has happened though is that the the media coverage has completely ceased. It's completely blanked out, and and the Indian media is very, especially urban English language media, is very particularly virulent. Uh, now. So that's one thing that's happening. It depends on where. It's not, I mean, again, you know, you mentioned the Kashmir panel. I'm sure some of my friends were there and the writer. But one of the interesting things was that there was this attempt to hold a literary festival in Kashmir. And most of the writers that I know, Mirza Wahid, Basharat Peer, they all backed out of it because there were this very strong, it was going to be held at this Delhi, Delhi public school, which has close connections with the army. And ultimately, you know, they, it was canceled. So, you know, I think, you know, there's so many of them happening now, but you know, there are. They often have corporate sponsors, so it's often that's that's the other question that comes up. Um, I think the most egregious one was a very, very uh, small, a small interurban town, a festival in Chhattisgarh, where children were forced to to actually come, and then one of the one of the Hindi writers just absolutely exploded when he realized this was happening. And, but you know, so so you know, I think there is a, there is a big connection between power and you know the spoken the, the, the written word the spoken word in terms of protests the Anna Hazari. the Anna Hazare protests were interesting but again I have to explain to people what's happening um, I mean basically it brought together a large number of middle class celebrity figures around the platform of corruption that you know India the government is very corrupt. And there was basically a document that was produced, or a, you know, it was a, it was, there were many drafts that it went through, that essentially we need something, in India needs something called a Jan Lokpal, uh, which is like you know, a, a, a sort of tribune who can basically call anybody, even politicians, to account for, to try them for corruption. Outside the electoral outside system. Outside the electoral system. And it had this very, very, on the one hand, I think the outrage. I think is understandable that things run badly. At the same time, the outrage, the outrage of the middle class. The middle class are also great beneficiaries of the fact that things are run badly. The system is gamed all the time. I don't think the Indian middle class is unique in this. By the way, you know, I, I think the system is gamed in many places. Actually, you know, so I think in terms of the middle class protest, uh, you know, there were these protests. There was this attempt to sort of take the public space. And essentially, you know, it ultimately, I think, from what I understand, it fizzled out. Um, you know, it, it fizzled out because the government does tend to be much more, it is much more harsh in, its, in the way it reacts to these public gatherings. But this is not, again, specific to India. If you look at cross from Occupy to, you know, Istanbul, to Turkey, to India, I mean, policing is much more violent than it used to be. Um, You know, it's much more sophisticated in its strategies. Now, the odd thing is that if you look at Kashmir, it's actually, it's flipped around. Like if you go to Srinagar now, there is no overt military presence. They don't have bunkers and machine guns at every corner because now the surveillance is done completely electronically. Mm -hmm and so Srinagar, it actually can seem like completely peaceful well for you know 3 days in a row and then something happens but one of the things that happened in terms of public protests in India is that in 2008, 2009, 2010, when there were big protests in Kashmir, a lot of the young people were using Facebook and social media. Until the government figured out that you know we can use this, and now they don't. You know people people don't want to use social media. They don't want to use the internet because they feel that this and uh, this is where Snowden and the NSA. India was India was very quick to say that we are not going to let Snowden come in here. Um, and, you know, people in, uh, I mean, people in power in India have said, what's wrong with this? This is fine. If the US was spying on India, that's fine. They're like friends. That's okay to refer to. So there's a, there's a kind of surveillance you know, mechanism that's happening, at least in places like Kashmir. So I don't know. I think protests, I mean, it, it's hard to say. It is happening. It's, it's very, very uneven. Uh, but the media is, I mean, you know, uh, is, is doesn't cover much of this. I don't know if that answers your question, but, you know, it's changing constantly. I think Carol and sorry. Marilyn. I'm sorry, right. Oh, good. I right did Excellent.
0: So um, I wondered if you would talk a little bit about your use sort
1: or of deployment of characters in nonfiction and fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and is there a case, is there sense in which um,
0: figures like um, that your nonfiction work is a kind of research that kind of gets you, gives you a sense of character development that will appear later in?
1: Novels, or is there a way, so like will an Esther figure or a Dwarf figure figure into the novel you're working on now, mm-hmm. or is there also a way in which your sort of novelist impulse or uh, desire to construct narrative and story patterns, does that influence the way you organize the, as you call them characters mm. in, in this novel? Okay, uh, that's a tough one. Any other writing questions, one I think? Uh, <laughs> I'll, 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 while I, yes, please. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yes. Well, in terms of, you know, I actually detest writing about myself in non-fiction. Uh, I, I hugely enjoy using my life in fiction because, you know, I twist things around. And uh, But in nonfiction, I've always been hesitant. This one, uh, in this non book, I use myself a little bit, although I was very irritated when an uh, agent early on said, referred to it as a memoir, because it's... I think that I'm the least important and least interesting character in the book. My function is essentially I'm tying them together, I'm bringing the different characters together. I also had a lot of... Um, so you know, the I was important to me because even though I was writing a nonfiction book, I didn't want it to be a journalist's book, not because there's anything wrong with a journalist's book, but I didn't think that was my strength or that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted it to be as scrupulously researched as possible, but almost like a non-fiction novel. Now, because I was going so much around different parts of the country, and the characters don't really know each other, so in a novel, you know, you can make the characters meet each other or collide with each other, or sometimes, you know, I mean, that wonderful, you know, Virginia Woolf novel, Mrs. Dalloway, where, you know, you have... Clarissa sort of walking down and you have Septimus and they almost meet but don't quite. This is wonderful, beautiful moment, but, you know, it's this very tightly controlled space. Now, I do have moments like that in the book, but I had to be open. These things had to happen. Like, you know, there's this moment where I'm with this engineer in his beautiful villa in Bangalore and there's this newspaper which has the face of Arundham Choudhury in it and, you know, I, I, I absolutely, you know, use that. But I had to use myself, the I. The I needed to have a history, the I needed to have a personality. I find it really hard now, I've become more critical as I've gone along, to read travel books or journalist books. Typically, often it's a Western journalist who goes in into some kind of space. And even when it's very well written, the narrator is finished going in writing about Patagonia or going in writing about India. There's nothing, they they are complete. And only the people around them are incomplete. But for me, I am actually incomplete as well. Which is why not only am I in, which is why I react to some of the characters, I wanted to make my biases very clear. There's no there's no pretense of objectivity. It's very clear whom I like more than others. Like, you know, there's a moment like for Esther, for instance. Uh, I actually go to her house, which I don't do with even when I go to the rich man engineer's uh, villa. It's empty, you know. It's not. It's not. Nobody's moved in. I'm not intruding into the space of domesticity, and that I was. I was doing it almost deliberately. I don't write so much about Arindam Chaudhuri's family because I felt that even though there are bits that I felt it wouldn't be right to to do so. Uh, but with Esther, she she asked herself that you know, do you want to come and have lunch and It was this completely different kind of interaction, and I've stayed in touch with her a little bit, actually, um, post, uh, so I actually know her story beyond what's written in the book. But yeah, I wanted to use the I to connect these characters, um, to make it clear to the reader that this I has a history, and in a way, this narrator is as unfinished. I am not some distant observer uh, watching people around me, but I am also somebody who's actually been Affected by these processes fold, unfolding around me, so that's one thing that I was trying to do deliberately, um, you know, uh, to 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 some degree. Um, in terms of coming back to fiction, I mean, I think well, in characters in fiction, can't really sue you, uh, you know. That's kind of nice. Uh, and there was this moment where, sitting in the offices of the of the British publisher and sitting with the lawyer, the Penguin lawyer. I remember this moment, I said, wait till I put him in a book, in a novel, and, and my editor is looking at me, she said, did you see how worried the lawyer looked, how how, are you? how worried she looked when he said that? Anyway, so, you know, there's much more, there's much more freedom, obviously, in what you can do with, with, the, with, the, with the characters in fiction. Obviously, there are many more ways to go wrong as well, because with more freedom comes also all these ways in which you can mess up. But... I mean, if I was to talk about my own 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 uh, uh, preferences, I do prefer the fictional characters because it's so much deeper that I can go with them. I can go inside their heads, and that's another reason for the narrator being there in the nonfiction book in a big way, because. I don't do that thing of going into people's heads. The only person whose head the non-fiction book goes into is the narrator, and and I can assure you, not everything. Only only selected sort of you know artifice uh, control. Control absolutely. But in a novel, you can go into the heads of the characters, and as a writer, I'm so surprised by what I find. I mean, I am by what I, when you go inside the head of a fictional character, sometimes you're really shocked by what is actually there. I mean. There was nothing, it was not there in my mind consciously when I was going in. So I do prefer that, but maybe I'm saying that because I'm working on fiction at the moment.